Hello, everybody, and welcome to another week, another episode, another moment, another passion-fueled conversation. This is Jubilee Street, a Nick Cave podcast. I'm joined by my wonderful, handsome, albeit dashing, genre-pushing, boundary-breaking, expert of the X-Men, comic book, cavalcade, contest of no one. It's Ian McCurtis, everyone. Give it up. That's right. Contest of no one. That's what they always say. <laughs> that was all improv. And I thought Ian was going to do my sign in, but I'll oh, do my no. own. Sorry. I'm it's okay. Joined. Forgive me. I'm joined by my esteemed, scholarly, worldly, educated, academic professor, <laughs> scientist of Scientology. <laughs> Alchemist of alchemy. <gasps> Meteorologist of meteorology. Can't say that on live mic. Magic of magicians. Jake Chris. There you go. Ian, do you want to tell the listeners what we're doing, what we're listening, what we're talking about this week? Yeah, let's get this intro over with so we start the dang episode. The Anna. Ian, I just want to start off asking, um, how's, how's music going this week? Any releases you're excited about? Yeah, today, so much great music came out. Tyler, the creator, uh, what's it called? Call Me If You Get Lost, something like that. Mm-hmm. The Modest Mouse album that I had no hope of being good is actually mm-hmm. excellent. Just mm-hmm. so exciting mm-hmm. that they are making good music again. What else? Lucy Dacus, Faye Webster. I was listening to mm-hmm. good new music all day. This woman who I think you would really like, Jake, named Spelling. I don't know if you ever heard her before. She does like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Experimental pop, kind of like FKA Twigs. You're nodding your head. So oh, I've heard, heard of her. her I've heard of her. Yeah, you know, I was on that. I was going to wait until today, but I listened to the whole Tyler, the Creator record last night, and um, I'll keep it short and sweet for the audience, but I loved it. A lot of standout tracks on there, some cool features. I was telling Ian before the podcast, it's kind of a, it's kind of a more straightforward rap record, but I think it's... As far as like quality of production, songwriting, creativity, I think this is probably going to top Igor for a lot of people. I don't like it as much as I liked Igor. I feel like I feel like it's this one just has like a different kind of vibe to it whereas Igor felt kind of t- like they got like lightning in a bottle. I'm really excited to hear that Modest Mouse record cuz you know, I love those first 3 Modest Mouse records and then I like Good News and then whatever the the ship sank, whatever. There's some good songs on that, but it's, it's it, I lost interest after good news, so I'm excited to return to him. I mean, they're one of my favorite bands. 
Yeah, the Strangers to Ourselves was really rough for me. Like, really <laughs> put a sour taste in my mouth. It's Modest Mouse. Man. So it's good to have that watch. And up. kudos to Modest Mouse being one of the bands that played outside in Louisville in, like, August or July a couple years ago. I didn't go, but can only imagine, like, playing in Louisville Heat with, like, tons of equipment. Like, insane. They've done it. They did it twice recently because they headlined Forecastle. That was hot as fuck. And then they played at Iroquois Amphitheater, and that was hot as fuck. Yeah. It's just always so hot in Louisville. Like, I'd be sweating through my chonies immediately. But I digress on that. We're talking about Deanna. I listened to Deanna, and then I let the record play. And I was like, holy fuck, this album is incredible. After this, watching Alice, Mercy is amazing. City of Refuge. And then I think I got to like Slowly Goes the Night and then maybe Sunday Slave. And then I, re- I restarted to Deanna again. So, yeah, I mean, this, this, this record's really cool. So I was excited to talk about this song. Um, do you have any initial thoughts you want to start with? For, I, I think Tinder Prey is like the most Blixa record. I don't know if people, other people agree with that. But I feel like this seems like the closest to his sensibilities out of the records he played on. I think Deanna is, I've always thought of it as just like a pastiche on 60s pop. You sent me that song by, uh, it was that gospel song. What was it? Do you remember off the top of your head? I think it's called Happy Day or Oh Happy Day. Yeah, so I didn't know it was a direct like pastiche of that song. But it just sounds like a lot of 60s pop songs. Uh, Gloria by Van Morrison, the chorus, sounds just like this. You brought up Twist and Shout by the Beatles. There's plenty of them. Yeah, it it's, it sounds like their take on like, like, it sounds like this was a song where, I mean, I don't ever think that Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, especially at this point, were like caring too much about like being liked, you know, they had their audience, they had established their audience by then and it didn't really matter what they did. But this song feels like, like, if any other band had put it out, it probably would have like skyrocketed them to like fame. But this was also coming out in the late eighties. And I feel like, you know, this was kind of an anti sound to what was happening at that time. Yeah. At least this directly. Cause like Jesus and Mary chain was doing stuff like this, but it was like all shoegazed out. So yeah, just being this straightforward, it's definitely not of the time so much. The funny thing about you showing me that it's, a take on this gospel song is I already thought it was like a perverted version of a song you'd hear in the sixties on the radio, but knowing not only that it's like perverting a gospel song makes it even funnier. Yeah. There this, there's some lines in this song that I think could be a birthday party lyric. Um, I think that I think you could almost consider this the first grinder main song. Sure. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, there's a line in here. Um, you'll probably know it as soon as I say it. Okay. We will eat out of their pantries and their parlors. What does that sound like? Cunnilingus. Uh, yeah. I mean, and then Ashley leavings in their beds and we'll unload into their heads on this mean season. This little angel that I squeeze in, she ain't been mean to me. Oh, Deanna. And then... I don't know about you, but this song reminds me a lot of... I, mean, I guess um, that could be sexual. It could be. I don't know. Unload into their heads definitely sounds be. like face fucking or something. Um, could be. This 
Nick Cave. This song reminds me a lot of like what would come later with the Bad Seeds as well, like um, 15 Feet of Pure White Snow. Oh, my Lord. I feel like the vocal delivery and everything feels very ahead of its time as far as like where the band would go from here. Yeah. Um, This song sticks out on the record. It's not sounding like the rest of the record. There's some really good songwriting going on here. Lyrics especially. uh, One line in particular that I love, no carpet on the floor and the winding cloth holds many moths around your Ku Klux furniture. I come a death's head in your frock. We discuss the murder pact. We discuss murder and the murder act. Murder takes the wheel of the Cadillac and death climbs in the back. I mean, could you get more ominous? And plus that Ku Klux furniture, that is like, that is so good on so many levels. Like, I didn't even get it. I I, I looked it up and I was like, oh, they're referring to like how people put like white sheets on their furniture to keep it from getting dirty, which is ironic because white sheets get dirty and then... You know, very funny line. What a crazy, like, just sim- like it's a sim- it's symbolic. It puts a picture in your head. It's also kind of a scary thing. Like ghosts are scary. Ku Klux Klan, like, purposefully dressed up like that to scare people. There's so much going on in this song. There's a lot of stuff about guns and death. Um, I also learned that this song is actually about a actual person named Deanna or it's based on a real person. And Nick did an interview with Andrew Dominic where he talked about this and he said, when I'm singing Deanna, for example, which I sing pretty much every night, it brings forward a kind of imagined romanticized lie about this particular person, which I find really comforting and exciting to sing about. Sometimes the song isn't strong enough to contain the fiction because memories are fictions and the songs kind of break down and are not singable. So they don't ever get played live because they're not strong enough to contain the memory of that person. But Deanna, who you know, because she became your girlfriend and you have a child from her, to which Andrew says, actually, when I started going out with Deanna was when that song came out. Nick didn't know that, and they kind of talk about it a little bit more, but I just thought that was a cool connection, you know, like how songs are almost always like based in like, like we were talking in that one episode where, you know, I'll kind of dive too deep into the lyrics and you're like, you know, I don't think it's that serious, but then you'll th- then you you might have an epiphany later listening to a song and you're like, oh my God, like, you know, Jake maybe. was right all along. That's what I find myself saying all throughout the day, every day. about everything I maybe I should get Birkenstocks Jake was right maybe you should maybe you should in a week that would be my hot take what I thought was weird I mean I think Nick Cave kind of can stretch the truth in interviews so he says in that one that Andrew Dominic had a kid with Deanna right Uh and he still works with Andrew Dominic closely to this day Uh uh-huh and then i saw another i think i read hand files where he said he he doesn't know what happened to deanna or like where she (laughs) is yeah that might just be some funny playing with the crowd can't be true like even if andrew dominic didn't stay with her he probably knows where she is and i'm sure him and nick talk a lot it's Mm -hmm. like one of those Mm -hmm. two things isn't true yeah i mean this article this article came out in 2013, so, you know, Nick's older now and, you know, imaginably lonely, so he might... Just kidding about that last line, but just a little little reference for Ian there. It, it, who knows? He might have forgotten some details. You know, he's been doing it for so long, so... There's something I want you to look up uh, with the... I come a death head on her frock, is that what it is? Great line, yeah. Are you... Do you know Marcel Duchamp? Certainly. He's the person that 
he kind of like started the kind of Dada. like idea. Uh, yeah. Like I, I know that like Tim and Eric and those guys really like Duchamp or they like kind of embody that as far as comedy and, goes. And so did the birthday party, you know, as far as music, taking ideas from that. Look up a piece of his called Faulty Landscape real quick. Anyone listening, look it up on your phone or computer, however you're listening. Faulty Landscape. Marcel. If Ian doesn't Duchamp. edit this part, we'll be doing it uh, in real time. Okay. I don't know if this is the right thing. Is it like a colorful, like kind of weird looking like duck person? <laughs> yeah, on a black background. Yeah. So that's his semen. Oh, is it really? He just came on something and then... And then painted over it? No, I, I think, like, manipulated somehow um, and called it Faulty Landscape and then, like, sold it and then later was like... That is so cool. Yeah, this is my semen. But the the line, like, I come a death head on whatever it is, it just reminds me of that piece of art. Like, that's what pops in my head. That's beautiful, Ian. I love that. Duchamp's awesome. It's just so... Especially that time, the art world was like so serious, and then he was selling people literally his semen. So cool. I just find hilarious. I mean, that's right up our alley. I mean, we love Fat Mike, and you know, he did that whole stunt where he was giving people his own piss at a Cokie the Clown show. So, and Tim and Eric, I mean, that would be a Tim and Eric skit verbatim. You always offer the yellow, but never the cream. A bit of the cab, hair of the cab. Apparently, the Ku Klux furniture lyric was a reference to a teenaged love's family's white-sheeted furniture. And the Death's Head lyric that you, re- you referenced, actually, um, there's a moth. And if you want to Google it, there's a Death's Head moth that is like supposedly like kind of an eerie image. And moths, I think, kind of... Nature. You've seen it before, Jake. Body. It looks like a skull oh, on yeah. wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, like, moths in general, I think, kind of embody, like, kind of a morose kind of obsession with death because they go towards, like, what's the line, you know, moths to lamps and moths just, like, burn up because they get too close to, like, an electric lamp or something. and Like a moth to flame, isn't that, like, a screamo band? Yeah, it's like a, like a Vans Warped Tour screamo band. So interesting line here. There's a line in the song about... Um, our little crime-worn histories, black and smoking Christmas trees, and honey, it ain't a mystery why you're a mystery to me. So I just saw this on Genius. I don't know if this was intended at all, but they connected this to a series of killings by a couple who were famous killers. In 1958, it was the Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate were the couple and it happened in 1958 and apparently they would like light Christmas trees and stuff on fire wherever they went. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting to hear. Uh, you know, there is sort of a, like a really sort of Bonnie and Clyde obsession with this, like, you know, Deanna oh, sure. and like sort of trying to get them to join you know, Nick's narrator here, you know, I ain't down here for your money. I ain't down here for your love. I'm down here for your soul. So there's like kind of a devilish quality here where you might start to think like, you know, is this person even really Nick singing right now? Is this like woman that he's singing to is, is like, is Deanna maybe just like in a room by herself, like, you know, concocting all these plans and like, you know, talking with herself in the, in the mirror and like, you know, masturbating and kind of just like walking around in these circles and, 
you know, then it's like, well, what if these are two people and they're sort of like, you know, one of them's kind of this like devilish side and the other one's a little bit more adventurous and, you know, they kind of coagulate into this like amalgamation of like, you know, fucking and stealing and like just kind of like debaucherous like murder, like just murder for the sake of it. Like there's there's like this like teenage, it's like, I mean, it's a lot like what it's like to feel like when you're in love as a teenager. Like it doesn't matter what anybody says, like you are going to cry your eyes out if this person doesn't love you or it's going to like hurt you in the pit of your stomach for, you know, like you're going to just only be able to roll around in your bedroom wishing that you could just be by this person for like one more second, you know. I saw an interview where he said that him and Deanna would skip school and just go to people's houses while they were out at work and just like hang out and eat their food and lounge around on the couch and then just like leave in the afternoon. Which I read you that know, too. isn't quite what I did as a teenager, but brings up that like teenage memory. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a part of Louisville that was not very populated and quickly became very populated. So there was all these like new subdivisions popping up. And we would always just like hang out in the skeletons of these houses, not while people were mm-hmm. living there yet, but just like these houses that were being built. We'd just like go in and hang out all the time. And it reminds me of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely had a childhood where, like, I spent a couple of summers just, like, going over to a friend's house and, like, you know, just going into unfinished houses and, like, going into the basement and, like, just kind of doing these kinds of things that could have been potentially dangerous to a kid my age. Mm -hmm. And I think that this song kind of has that sort of, like, lust for life, like no matter what, like, I want to be with you, baby. I just, you know, it's just about, like, consuming this person, this, you know, Deanna character was all that is all that is, like, it's, like, so much so the center of attention that it goes past being the title and, like, center of the song. Like, it's, like, you listen to this track, and the more you listen to it, the more it kind of has this, like, weird kind of take over you. It's really, really kind of a weird song the more you, like, dive into it and think about it. I found this performance of Deanna from about 10 years ago, maybe a little more than that. I think it's from 2007. And so Henry Rollins is a huge Nick Cave fan. I know he has I have that video. Noi- he has the Neubotten logo tattooed. He might have a birthday party tattoo. I'm not sure. But anyway, this is a story he tells uh, on a spoken word album, I think. And I know he's told the story at performances. So he's going to see Grinderman in wherever he lives, probably L.A. or San Francisco or something. And Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys is also there. And somehow it comes to be that Henry Rollins is going to go up and do Deanna with Nick Cave. Uh, and Henry Rollins is going to be one of the backup singers. And he's like, come on, Jello, like, do the song with me. And Jello Biafra is like, I don't I don't know the song. I don't I don't know it. He's like, it's fine. Just sing Odeanna and go crazy, and the crowd's going to go crazy. So you can find a video of it online if you just search Deanna Henry Rollins. And Jello's on the right, and you can tell he doesn't know the song at all. He's just, like, dancing around <laughs> trying to watch Henry Rollins for when he sings. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. I actually have that video pulled up here. I forgot to watch it before the episode like a doofus, but I'll I'll watch it after we record finish recording. You know, this th- that scene you were talking about uh, how Nick and Deanna would leave school early and like go hang out and like 
it reminded me a lot of that book It by Stephen King. Um, whenever they it. went down to uh, the Barrens, I think is what they called it, which is this like kind of magical place that they go hang out. That's I feel like it kind of changes how it looks a lot of the time, like in the book. But it's like basically they go hang out in like a sewer. Like I don't I'm anyone that grew up in like a suburban area, like, you know, there was always some part of your neighborhood where there was like a water runoff and then it was like it was like, like a drainage creek. ditch. Oh yeah. And and you know, there were trees everywhere and probably like, you know, empty beer cans and cigarettes and stuff because kids would go down there and hang out. Condoms. But like when you're condoms, um, I don't know why you whispered that. Those little uh, bo- those little bitty bottles of alcohol you always find at places like that. Why didn't you whisper that? We live in a sexually repressive culture, but we can freely talk about alcohol. I don't know. This song just kind of made me like go back to those times where, you know, I wouldn't have even been a kid. You know, I'd have been like maybe fifteen or sixteen. That's a kid. And you know, I'd be with my brother who was probably eleven at the time, maybe twelve, and his friend. And we would just, I, I would just be like, we're going to go check out this storm tunnel. And it would be like really long and like dark. And when you get in the middle, it's like you can't even see where you're stepping. But you can see the light at the end, but you can't see where you are. So you don't know if there's like snakes or leeches or some shit in there. But that's kind of the fun of it, right? And that's kind of the vibe I get from this song where it's like, it's so, like the sound of the song is so fun and like... The mix is really interesting. I'm starting to notice this with a lot of the stuff, especially what they produce or work with with Flood as their producer, but the guitar is mixed so low in the mix. Like, you can hear it when it's important, but if you go and listen to it, like, there is a lot of stuff going on uh, behind the scenes here that is really cool. And this song is, I think every... Bad Seed song rewards more listens. But I think that this song is really cool because there's some, like, this record in general, there's, like, when you go back and if you go, if you really listen to the Mercy Seat, like, there is so much weird shit going on. And I feel like I've just never been that crazy about the mixes on these tracks. This song has a decent one, but I, I feel like the guitar is never the forward instrument with Nick. It's always Nick, then bass, and drums or drums than bass, and then everything else, like, you know, even piano is a little bit louder than all that stuff, too. But, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's an energy to this song that is very, like, it feels like you're going on, like, like a ride, and you're just in a car, and you're kind of going against your will, and you're kind of being forced to watch what these people do, and it reminds me a lot of that scene in um, Squid and the Whale, too, where the kid, like, masturbates in the library or something and then he like has the cum in his hand and then he wipes it on a book or a shelf or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's like the only scene from that movie I remember. You remember the one I don't know. Where, where he um, he plays a song at the talent show. It might be like a Guns N' Roses song and he tells everyone uh, he wrote it. Oh my God. And he becomes like... So cringy. Everyone's like so proud of him. Like you wrote this beautiful song and then someone's like, I know you didn't write that song. Yeah. That's Jesse Eisenberg's character, right? Yeah, and it's so like both of those kids are fucking psychotic. Searching for I mean it's what we talked about last week on the birthday party episode, just like searching for attention, just lying about this song you wrote. Yeah. Um This song is uh Mick Harvey's central. He he gets a co writing credit on it. 
He played yep. the drums and the bass and the acoustic guitar track. And he shot and directed the music video on an 8mm film. So I'm guessing this is, you know, a song. He probably wrote. Obviously, Nick Cave wrote the lyrics, but I'm guessing this, maybe the, re- the direction of the song was very Nick Harvey-centric. The, there's a really and, funny comment on the music video. They do all those shots real quick of everyone else singing the back the backup vocals, just the Deanna's. And it's it's almost always and Blixa. Someone said, someone said even, even when though, <laughs> even, even when Blixa is lip syncing. Yeah, even when it's just Blixa's lips moving, you can still tell he has a German accent. And if you watch the video, <laughs> it's so true. He, just the way he mouths the word Deanna, you can tell there's an accent. It's really funny. So good. So funny. LOL, Jeff. LOL. And the red hand files, uh, number 76, where someone asked what is Ku Klux furniture, he talks a little at the end about how, whether or not you have the same artistic and creative highs when you're sober is when you did drugs. And he said, you know, maybe you don't have the same highs, but you don't have the lows either. So it's worth it to be clean and he talks about some of the stuff that you don't have to worry about anymore such as being bashed up in police stations suicidal thoughts overdoses broken bones he just lists all these bad things right you're gonna like this jake one of them being ripped off herd mentality dead friends liking charles bukowski i thought that was really wait what was what is this? Oh, oh, it's in the back. I'm trying to pull up the red hand files here. That's what he said in the post? Yeah, he's just listing all these, like, things you don't have to worry about anymore if you stop doing drugs. And one of them is liking Charles Bukowski. Shit, man. I'll, I'll stand by that Love is a Dog from Hell is a pretty solid book of poetry, but I think everything else by Bukowski is, like, it's only going to resonate with you from, like, 17 to 21, and then I think if you still have Bukowski as your personality after that, You've got a problem because <laughs> it's just it's it ain't that good. We can tie it all back to the beginning, the modest mouse. Mm-hmm. Who would want to be mm-hmm. such an asshole? That's what they said. And their what song song's that from? <laughs> what records that? I don't know that fucking song. You don't know the song called Bukowski? Oh, well, then that was a bad reference. It's on good news for people who love bad news. Oh, I'm telling I dude, I haven't heard that record in so long. Yeah, I remember that song now. You know what's funny is the song I remember best from that record is Dance Hall. I'm on a dance hall, dance hall every day. Oh, I'm on a dance hall, dance hall every day. Um, the middle of that record has so much like Tom Waits influence. When I worked at uh, Whole Foods, they played Ocean Breathe Salty, like what felt like That's every time I walked into the store. And that is one of the few songs that I think make. I mean, there's a lot of good radio like Muzak Station songs that. I still listen to like you know any Talking Heads song they play, um, but that's one song where it's like Ocean Breeze Salty. Like that guitar riff is so good. The lyrics, I think Isaac's really gotten like so good at singing by that point. Like that, like even Float On is an incredible song. When you think about like how big that song was, you were like, oh, that Dude, makes total sense. I, I'm not really a big fan of Float On, but I think Ocean Breeze Salty is like. One of the times where they picked a song to be the single and it really was like the best song on the record. You you just talking about it. I'm glad you pr- brought this up. I think it's like one of the best radio singles of my childhood. The 
Absolutely. I you mean, you couldn't go life. anywhere without hearing that. You wasted life. Why wouldn't you waste the afterlife? Like, that gives me chills every time I heard it. And I hear it all the time, like you said, at the store, just like out. And it still mm-hmm. makes me emotional. It's a great song. It is 100% a great song. I'll probably, honestly, I don't know if I'll have time tonight, but I will definitely check out that Modest Mouse record. Um, but anyway, we're here talking about Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. I wonder if Isaac Brock's a Nick Cave fan, though. I would I would wonder about that. Um, I saw an interview he did, you know, they, they're doing the press tour, the press junket. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I saw an interview he did where, first of all, I don't think he's doing very well mentally. He's talking about some crazy shit. But one of the interviews, he kept bringing up how important Fugazi was to him, which really surprised me because I wouldn't have expected that. Oh, man. Are you kidding me? Like, Lonesome Crowded West and, I mean, all of those early Modest Mouse records are so, like, I mean, there's a reason I like Fugazi as much as I do, like, because the way that Modest Mouse played on the, like, it makes sense that they would like Fugazi, he would like Fugazi as much as he did, just being how inventive Fugazi was and how I feel like that band did so many things with, like, two guitars and a bass and a drum kit. True. No, it does make sense with the guitar playing. I just don't ever think of... Fugazi is so, like, violent to me in their approach in Modest Mouse. Even though they're noisy, there's a calmness to them. So the two things don't mix in my head. But it makes sense with the guitar playing. Like I said earlier, there's, like, so much guitar stuff going on on these tracks. And what he contributes to this song, Blixa and Mick, like, I'm just curious, like how the writing went down because so often in these, you know, earlier bad seeds records, like let's just say the first five, not, not counting kicking against the pricks. It's weird. Like it's not even really guitar playing sometimes. Like it's just, it's like atmospheric. I mean it, it, you can, and you can hear like the new, the Neubauten stuff as much as you can hear like the kind of crampsy, gun club style and then you know whatever like mick harvey is like kind of just the sound at that point you know like like the bass playing is just very much so like what he had established up until this point so i don't know i i'm i'm interested to you know do more deep dives in like how this music got tracked because when you look up the history of this record there's a really good um article about Tender Prey in particular from 2013 as well by John Freeman where he breaks down the like making of the record and I mentioned earlier this was like a heavy heroin phase for Nick but apparently this album like creation of this album in general was so chaotic like Mick went on record as describing it as being an utterly chaotic year and that Cave's drug use was at its worst point and beginning to interfere with what was going on and not only that but you know Cave was like stretched creatively because he was working on so much shit at the time. And I don't know. I wanted to ask you, Ian, like, I feel like both of us are pretty hardworking in our art. You know, if we're not working on like our main project of writing, like we're drawing or working on music, you're in a band. Do you ever feel like you could work as much as Nick Cave or that you do or have? Because to me, it seems like I barely have enough time to eat some days. (laughs) between like what I have going on in my life, just with like my family, my dog, like taking care of, like I, I, I spend a lot of time on my health exercising and I'm like, 
would I have been, would I be more creative if I just, you know, chain smoked and only like, you know, didn't have Wi-Fi and just like wrote all day? Like, would that be, the, is that the life that I want? What do you think about that? Like, what do you think about this kind of like work ethic for somebody like him and for yourself? I just don't, I don't have it. I, I could be infinitely more productive than I am. I work eight hours a day, but that leaves another eight hours a day where I could be making art if I wanted to. Like, I just don't have the drive. I, I could do way more mm-hmm. than I do. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not Nick Cave. I'm not that, per- I'm not that kind of person. I wish I was. I just, I think this record, having only listened to bits and pieces of the, mer- of, I'm sorry, Tender Prey, we did, mer- we did cover the Mercy Seat on, that was our first episode of the podcast. And I just, like, like reading about how they made this record and it just it puts into perspective like how like even people who like Nick and the Bad Seeds who are like you know rock and like punk idols in many circles how like even when they were like beginning to become in like the heights of their career it was just as if like everything was so close to falling apart and it's it just seems so crucial sometimes that like it's, it seems lucky that he had someone like Mick Harvey and like the kinds of people he surrounded himself with who like kept everything going, you know? I think that's many, if not most, creative endeavor, endeavors are at all points so close to falling apart. Like, you know how it is being in a band. It's just like any little tension becomes so magnified. Any little comment can turn into a huge thing. At all points, everything can fall apart. It's a miracle any band stays together. There's a really interesting story in this Quietus article, too, that I'll just mention. So during this time, Cave undertook a two-month residential detoxification program. And in a short promo tour during the summer of 1988, there was an altercation with a, a journalist for NME named Jack Barron. And apparently, he was writing a cover feature on the Bad Seeds, and he asked too many questions about Cave's drug use. So Nick threw a glass at him and called him a shit eater before punching the journalist <laughs> to the ground. Oh, my God. And apparently the guy who wrote this article read that story before he went to interview Nick in the Bad Seeds in, like, you know, the early 2010s, and it gave him a lot of apprehension. Um, I guess Nick has, like, famously been, like, not great, not, not trusting of the media I think he's still kind of like that because they don't do a lot of Q and A's. When they do, it's kind of a rare treat. Um, well, well, now the ones he does, he conducts himself. Like he doesn't use a. It's on his terms, which is smart. Journalist. I feel like he's at a point yeah, where he shouldn't terms, have right. to. He wouldn't have to deal with any bullshit. But um, sort of just to close my thoughts on the song, um, and then I'll let you take it. I I really like Deanna. I think it's like a pretty strong offering from this record, and it, honestly, like kind of blindsided by it like i i thought it was a really interesting song and definitely like excited to return to tender prey and this song in the future yeah that's deanna for you i did get a mailbag question from somebody they had a question for you ian i thought we could answer this to close out the podcast okay i want to hear your answer to it first though okay so the here i've got the email pulled up on my phone okay so the Sorry, it crashed for a second. Okay. So the reader or the listener said, Hi, uh, big fan of the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed 
the episode for Mercy Seat, and um, I'm getting caught up still, but I really liked the Bright Horses episode. It was a good standout. I'm curious if you guys have ever thought about what kind of mutant Nick Cave would be if he were ever to be featured in the X-Men. I know that you guys like comics. I'm not super into them, but I read a lot of the X-Men books in the 90s. Wishing you well. Signed, Anna from Scotland. Anna from Scotland. Scotland, where Moira Mattaggart from the X-Men is from. Hey. So, great question, Anna. Uh, I think that if Nick were a mutant, and he were to... I think he would probably not be on the X-Men, and he also would not be in the Brotherhood of Mutants. And I think that he would probably be something like Angel based on the lyrical content of his songs. But I think it'd be like Angel mixed with Beak. So he'd be like kind of a bird-looking creature who's kind of holy. And he also has uh, like the sort of like social tics that Nightcrawler has. So, you know, not like a special power. He would just look kind of, you know, holy and have an interest in God and religion and, you know, be afflicted by the, you know, pains of being alive. What do you think, Ian? There's a, like, C-list X-Men character named Empath, and their power is <laughs> basically just to make other people feel whatever emotion they want you to feel. And if you ever, if you've seen it cave live, I mean, that's, he might have that mutant power, the way he can command a yeah. room. So I think he would be True. Empath. He would just... If he wants you to feel happy, you feel happy. If he wants you to feel sad, you feel sad. I agree with you. I don't think he'd be on the X-Men. I don't think he'd be a villain. I think he'd just be doing his own thing. Yeah. The world wouldn't even know he was a mutant. He'd probably just be using his power to get fans. Make, Yeah, get fans. I was going to say, he, if he were a villain, he would make an excellent cast for the Purple Man if they ever rebooted Jessica Jones or or if he showed up in a Daredevil thing. As good as he is when he pops up acting from time to time and the way the MCU just, like, casts everyone, I wonder if he's ever been contacted to play someone in a Marvel movie. I feel like he also strikes me as being an excellent Sebastian Shaw. Yeah, if they ever do, uh, I mean, this is kind of deep X-Men. Most people probably don't care. But if they ever do the Hellfire Club and the movies, yeah, he'd be a great Sebastian Shaw. Sebastian Shaw. Well, um, that was that's another like episode. That's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great pick, Jake. Once again, I am always right. I think that Ian will agree with me that this was another excellent episode of Jubilee Street, a Nick Cave podcast. Uh, you can check us out at Jubilee episode. Street Pod on Instagram.com or on your phone app. Uh, we have an email. JubileeStreetPod at gmail.com if you'd like to email us. We love to talk to you. We love to hear from you. We love to hear about your ideas and, you know, we like having fun. We like we like to laugh. We also have a link tree in our Instagram bio where it will take you to everywhere you can listen to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you can get podcasts, we should be available. Go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave us a five-star review and we love you very much. And we are going to be burning all your Christmas trees come Christmas. Because this also is... I want, I want to say this at the end. 
if anyone has any extra money, if anyone has anything they can spare to donate, this week Warren Ellis announced that he is starting a wildlife sanctuary called Ellis Park. And they're looking for money to get it up and running. We're both animal lovers. This sanctuary, it looks like they're going to... It's going to be a long-term place to care for animals that, for whatever reason, injuries or birth defects, whatever it might be, can't care for themselves. And it looks like it's a great project and is definitely worthy of your money. Cool. I didn't know about that. Good plug. Warren Ellis just always being... Good night, you guys.